Hello, everyone. Welcome to the first online church service of Bridgeway Community Church during quarantine 2020. I want to welcome you, all of you uh, here through the camera. We're standing in an empty room right now, but we're with you together as the church. So as I, uh, as I welcome and begin the church service this morning, let me read for you some verses from the Psalms. Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth give way, though the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Let's pray together. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that even though there's distance between us right now, you are in our midst. You're in our midst whether we're sitting on the couch. You're in our midst whether we're around the kitchen table. You're in our midst whether we're in the vehicle, on our phone. You're in our midst whether we're standing in an empty room here at the church. Lord, you are the fortress of our church. You are the fortress of Bridgeway. You always have been. And now during this time, Lord, we lean into that fortress more maybe than we ever have before. We call on you, Lord, to be the steady rock, the ever-present help in trouble for us right now in our trouble. We lean on you. And we know, Lord, that we can lean on you because you will not fail, you will not fall. So be glorified through this church service, we pray, Lord Jesus, in your name, amen. Amen. Welcome, Bridgeway Community Church, and anyone else who might be tuning into this, I'm Pastor Nick, and that was Pastor Darren. Uh, we're so glad that you've joined us, and we hope that wherever you're listening to this from, that uh, you are in the presence of God, and that God will bless you mightily for, uh, for the time that you've set apart for him. I want to draw your attention that uh, as we're posting this on our website, there will be a link on the website to a YouTube playlist. There's a couple songs on there. It's quite an eclectic mix. Um, but I thought that I, as I was praying this week, I wanted to just come up with some songs that perhaps you could sing along with in your homes or wherever you are that would also uh, bring you to a point of worship. Pastor Darren already read scripture. I'd like to read some scripture as well. Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right side until I make your enemies into a footstool for you. The Lord will let your power reach out to Zion and you will rule over your enemies. Your glorious power will be seen on the day that you begin to rule. You will wear the sacred robes and shine like the morning sun in all of your strength. The Lord has made a promise and it will never be broken. You will be a priest forever, just like Melchizedek. My Lord is at your right side. When he gets angry, he will crush all other kings. He will judge the nations, cracking their skulls, leaving piles of dead bodies all over the earth. And he will drink from any stream that he chooses while winning victory after victory. The word of the Lord. As we open up our bulletins and look at the announcements, you're going to notice yours came as an email on Friday. We're going to try to communicate with you regularly. We're going to have the office sending out these emails each week. The announcements as you can imagine, are a little few and far between right now. You may have noticed that all the activities at the church have been postponed until further notice. We'll keep you updated as the situation changes. <clears throat> You'll notice in that email a financial update for the month of March and three different ways to continue giving to the church while you're distanced away from the church. So give some of those a try if you'd like. Uh, birthdays, of course, are posted this week. Julie, Brenda... Mandy, even Nicole, just a few of the people celebrating this week. So make sure you at home read that email and then start texting people and giving them phone calls because it's their birthday and they can't celebrate with anybody. So make sure <laughs> you're on the phone taking care of them. 
because this will be a quiet week at home for them. Another special announcement sent to us by the Canadian MBs is they're having a day of fasting and prayer. So let me just read a little bit of this for you. It says, Dear Saskatchewan MB family, we invite you to join us at 10 o'clock Saskatchewan time on Wednesday, March 25th, for an hour of prayer with your MB brothers and sisters. We invite you to fast from a meal that's closest to the prayer time in your time zone. So they're going to be using Daniel chapter 9 as a guide for this prayer time. This is on Wednesday. So if you'd like to be part of this, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, it's a Zoom meeting as well. So contact Pastor Nick or myself and we can get you the information to join this Zoom meeting and be a part of this national uh, time of prayer and fasting. That's all the announcements for this week. As we go to our prayer items, we want to first extend our condolences to the family of John Tukulski, uh, who passed away. Uh, we had his funeral on Friday, and it was a small gathering, but the Lord was present, and I think it was a time of just celebrating John's life and remembering John's eternal life that he's currently living for the Lord in heaven. So remember that family in your prayers. Uh, there's other prayer items that we've sent to you, so please remember them at this time. There are people who are shut up in care homes, and all of the care homes have been closed to visitors. And so a lonely place has become an even more lonely place. Uh, I think it's really important for us to be surrounding each other with prayer during this time of social isolation. So please remember um, the Bridgeway people in your bulletin who are in the various facilities at Herbert, uh, in the Meadows, in Cypress House. Also remember our director of ministry, Phil Gunther. Uh, he's got an extra workload during this time of crisis and has been contacting pastors and churches to help us navigate through this interesting time that we're in. Remember Phil and his wife Janine in your prayers. We're also praying for Emmanuel Community Church in Pierceland. So if you're praying this morning and you want to remember the church that meets in Pierceland and whatever uh, worship will look like for them this morning, Frank and Irene pastor that church. And then in Multiply, uh, we're just praying specifically for the country of Europe and for the gospel to go forth. These are interesting times, um, but none of these were a surprise to the Lord. And so we're praying for the gospel to go forth in Europe. As you turn your eyes a little more locally this morning and this week, we're praying for the ministry at St. Stephen's Anglican Church. So remember that church in your prayers as well. Let's take a moment and pray together. Father, I thank you that you are sovereign. You are still in control. You are just as in control of this planet now as you were a month ago. We're just a little more aware of it. You're just as in control of our lives right now as you were a month ago. We're just a little more aware of it. Your scripture has always said that the just will live by faith We've lived by faith, but perhaps now we're just a little more aware of it. I pray in this time of uncertainty, Father, that our faith would be our rock, would be a place for us to cling, that we would not be like those who don't know you, who may be running around scared, panicked, not knowing what tomorrow holds. We know who holds tomorrow. And so we look to you. Thank you for what you're doing in Swift Current. We remember St. Stephen's Anglican Church and the people there. Pray that you would just continue to shine your gospel in them and through them. We thank you for the work that you're doing in Europe and pray that you would just continue to set aside more workers um, to develop and plant churches and preach the gospel, Lord, um, throughout Europe. We particularly remember, Lord, the challenges in the Arabic world, Father God, and we just pray that your gospel would go forth to those people. We thank you for the church in Pierceland and for the gospel presence that you have in Pierceland, and we pray that you would be with them. 
We thank you for setting apart Phil as our provincial director, Lord, and uh, pray that you would just strengthen him and protect him and give him your wisdom as he leads churches. And finally, Lord, we remember in these moments when so many of us are shut up and can't get out and restricted in our movements, Father, give us a sense that this is reality for some of the people in our congregation, those who are in care homes, those who are in high-needs facilities, Lord, those who are in palliative care, those who wind up in the hospital. We pray especially, Father, uh, at this time that you would be a shepherd uh, to the sick, that you would be a comfort, and that you would be a healer. We thank you. We thank you, Father, that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence to find mercy and grace in our time of need. So we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. As we lead, excuse me, into the sermon this morning, we're going to start with a story. This is Abram's story, Melchizedek's story, and this is our story goes a little like this. In the midst of the chaos, is God even there? Where did God go? Why would this happen? Who bought all the toilet paper? The answer might surprise you. Pay attention to the surprises in life, the moments that emerge when you least expect them. It's in those moments of surprise that we often see God move. In the midst of the turmoil and the chaos, we search for his presence. Has God forgotten us? Is he even here? Our world is sick. Our daily life is constant disruption and confusion. The question is, where will God surprise us? Where will he show up? What will he say to us? if we're willing to listen. Today we turn our attention to the story of Abram. Abram and his family, along with his nephew Lot, had received great blessings from God. They were wealthy, provided for, and prospering. Their families had grown so large and so rich from God's blessing that they had to separate their farms. God had blessed their obedience. What could possibly go wrong? It was at this time that the land of Canaan fell into chaos and turmoil. It was four foreign kingdoms that held the land of Canaan hostage for 12 years. In Genesis chapter 14, these four kings are making their way into Canaan to plunder the five major kingdoms of the promised land. It says that they attack many small tribes along the way as they traveled and then drew up battle lines against the kings of Canaan. The five kings and their armies flee in fear and are completely plundered by the foreign powers. The cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, along with others, are completely stripped of their resources, possessions, and citizens. Taken hostage and captive, the people are carried away, including Lot and his entire family. Why would God allow this to happen? What had Abram done to deserve this to his family? An entire country brought to its knees in fear. For Lot and his family, they would have been terrified. Maybe they hid in their homes with whatever food they'd collected. Avoided traveling in town. Tried to keep their heads low. Maybe some social distancing. But they couldn't hide from it. They weren't strong enough. So where is God? Does he care? Word spreads across Canaan to the house of Abram by a man who had escaped the battle. Abram was immediately concerned. He assembles the entire fighting force of his family, 318 men. But who is Abram to go after these kings? 
Who is he with his small number to chase after the armies of four kingdoms? Without any sign of fear, he and his men go on the offensive. They chase down the armies of the foreign kingdoms and rescue the captive people of Canaan. Lot and his family are saved. Only by God's grace could so few men overpower so many soldiers. God is victorious through Abram. Now Abram returns home with all of the plundered possessions, all of the Canaanite people now in his care. As the victor, he's now the owner of everything, won in battle. So what would Abram do with his newfound wealth? Now, possibly, the richest and most powerful man in the promised land, will he return the people to their cities? Would he return the possessions back to their owners? Or would this plunder become his personal fortune? Well, on the journey home, Abram is met by two kings. One is the king of Sodom, defeated, humiliated. His city ripped apart by war and his wealth disappeared. Coming out to make a deal for the people and the riches of his city. The other, the king of Salem, Melchizedek. He was called the king of righteousness. A man not mentioned before in the Bible story, coming out to meet Abram with bread and wine and a blessing from the Lord. This king was also a priest, a priest of God Most High, an unusual role for a king. Why would God's priest show up at such a time as this? Where was he when Lot lost everything? What does God want with him now? Well, pay attention to the surprise. Pay attention for the unexpected moment God shows up in your story. What is God doing now? What is God saying to you? We're told that Melchizedek was a priest of God Most High. And before the king of Sodom even says a word, what this king of righteousness says to Abram leaves us stunned. He speaks a blessing over Abram, a blessing from the Lord. The king then gives praise to God Most High and gives him full credit for winning the victory. The king of Sodom, on the other hand, he's waiting to make a deal with Abram, a deal to make him so rich it would change his life forever. He will offer him all of the possessions of Sodom, You see, in the king's mind, God did nothing. He considers Abram to be the victor, and in that right to the victor goes the spoils. But King Melchizedek, the priest of God Most High, understands clearly that it was not by Abram's strength that this victory was achieved. It was the power of God, the God who appears in the chaos of our lives the God who's in control. Before the king of Sodom can even offer Abram a single piece of gold, Abram sacrificially offers the priest a tenth of everything in his possession. This comes as a complete surprise to us. The law of tithing doesn't exist. The priesthood that God would establish to collect the tithe, it won't appear for more than 500 years. Where does this priest come from? Why would Abram surrender so much to somebody he's never met? You see, it wasn't the priest that Abram was surrendering to. It was God. It was God that he was drawing near to. In the chaos, God was there. When Lot was taken hostage, God was there. When 318 men brought the armies of four kingdoms to their knees, God was there. So where is God now? Where is he in your chaos? 
The answer might surprise you. Turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to Hebrews chapter 7. And as you're turning there, I want to ask you a question this morning. Those of you watching this message from home, take a quick moment around your tables or all by yourself to answer this question. Who are the most important people in the Old Testament? When I ask you about Old Testament characters, who springs to mind first? Who gets top billing? Is it Abraham? the father of our faith? Is it Moses, the great leader who led the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt? Is it Joseph and the amazing technicolor dream coat? Maybe you like the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah, the thundering voices of God. When you think of famous characters in the Bible, who do you think of? Maybe you go back to Sunday school and you think of some of those amazing stories that you learned even as a small child. Stories about Esther or Daniel or Noah or Jonah or Daniel in the lion's den. Maybe, maybe you're a poet or a musician yourself and you think of King David. Who do you think of? Chances are pretty good that if you were to list the top 10 characters in the Old Testament as they come to your mind, there's one name that wouldn't be on any of our lists. It would be this guy, Melchizedek. Who does he think he is? I mean, he shows up once in Genesis chapter 14, and then he shows up one more time in Psalm 110. And that's it. That's all he shows up. Hardly top billing, certainly not the first name on the marquee, this mysterious Melchizedek. Who is he? And why does he matter? We're going through the book of Hebrews, and by now you're probably realizing that the writer of the Hebrews is deliberately doing something. He's taking all of the important elements of the Hebrew faith, the law and the sacrifice, the beliefs that shaped Israel for thousands of years, the stories they told to their grandchildren, the worldview that they passed down from generation to generation. He's taking all of these elements of this faith that has been such an important part of who they are and he is demonstrating that that this legacy of faith that's been handed down through the descendants of Abraham all finds its rightful culmination in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the capstone of the Old Testament faith. Jesus is the seed of the woman in the book of Genesis Jesus is the Passover lamb in the book of the Exodus. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice of Leviticus. Jesus is the smitten rock in Numbers. Jesus is the faithful prophet in Deuteronomy. And so the writer of this book wants to take all of these elements of Jewish faith and show how Jesus is better. Jesus is better than angels Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the law. Jesus is better than Sabbath rest. Jesus is better than the word God spoke through the prophets. Jesus is better. And you don't have to be steeped in um, Jewish faith. You don't have to be a, a person with a degree behind your name and a biblical scholar in order to understand this. The writer is taking all the important elements of the Jewish faith and he's showing them that Jesus Uh, Jesus is better than all of them. He's the culmination of them, and he's better. But then in Hebrews chapter 7, this happens. Like the writer takes this obscure, weird little story from the life of Abraham to introduce and talk about a character who literally means nothing in the Jewish faith. This guy, Melchizedek. There's no uh, altars to Melchizedek. There's no psalms that are sung to him regularly. There's no recognition. He has essentially no bearing on the Jewish faith. So why does the writer of Hebrews mention him? Well, let's take a look together and see what we can learn. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1 to 4 says, This Melchizedek was the king of the city of Salem and also a priest of God Most High. 
when Abraham was returning home after winning a great battle against the kings, Melchizedek met him and blessed him. Then Abraham took a tenth of all that he'd captured in battle and gave it to Melchizedek. The name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And king of Salem means king of peace. There's no record of his father or his mother or any of his ancestors, no beginning or end to his life. He remains forever a priest resembling the son of the most high God. Consider then how great this Melchizedek was. As I think about this passage of Scripture, I think there's really uh, one main idea that the writer of Hebrews wants to bring out in these verses. You see, as great, as amazing as Moses was, as, as incredible as the ten plagues and the parting of the Red Sea and the giving of the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, the tabernacle in the wilderness, as great as all of that was, as God is setting up this Jewish faith, God always had a bigger plan in mind. God always had a bigger plan in mind. These Jewish people had always considered themselves to be special, set apart, unique in God's sight. And they were. They were a unique nation, special to God, and they needed to be separate from the other nations around them. But inevitably, the temptation set in, and soon, rather than viewing themselves as being different, from the other nations because of God, they began to think of themselves as being better. Better than all the other nations. And yet somehow, God was working on a bigger plan. You know, at one point in our New Testament, Jesus is walking through the temple grounds with his followers, the disciples, and they're all gazing around like tourists, right? If they had cameras, they would have been taking pictures. And they're amazed by the temple precincts and all the beautiful buildings, the wealth and the splendor. And they're admiring all of this. And they're pointing it out to Jesus. And in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is completely unimpressed. He says this, all of these buildings are going to be demolished, completely smashed, not one stone upon the other. Matthew chapter 24. You see, the disciples are so proud of their Jewish faith, but God always had a bigger plan, and Jesus knew what it was. Here in Genesis 14, retold in Hebrews 7, Abraham wins this great victory. And perhaps, as Darren mentioned, maybe at this moment, Abraham thinks that he's doing pretty good, pretty important to God, a great amount of wealth, a great victory. Man, I must be something. And Melchizedek comes along and reminds Abraham and reminds us, God always had a bigger plan. Let's keep reading Hebrews chapter 7, verse 5 through 14. Now the law of Moses required that the priests who are descendants of Levi must collect a tithe from the rest of the people of Israel who were also descendants of Abraham. But Melchizedek was no descendant of Levi and yet he collected a tenth from Abraham. And Melchizedek placed a blessing upon Abraham, the one who'd already received God's promises. Without question, the person who is giving the blessing is always greater than the one receiving the blessing. The priests who collect tithes are men who get old and die. And so Melchizedek is greater than they are because we're told that he lives on. Verse 9, in addition, we might even say that these Levites, the one who collect the tithes, paid a tithe to Melchizedek when their ancestor Abraham paid a tithe to him. For although Levi wasn't yet born, the seed which would become him was in Abraham's body when Melchizedek collected a tithe from him. And so if the priesthood of Levi, on which the law was based, could have achieved the perfection God attended, why did God need to establish a different priesthood with a priest in the order of Melchizedek instead of the order of Levi and Aaron? And if the priesthood is changed, then the law must also be changed to permit it. For the priest we're talking about belongs to a different tribe whose members have never served at the altar as priests. What I mean is our Lord, Jesus, came from the tribe of Judah. And Moses never mentioned any priests coming from that tribe. 
And there's a lot in this passage. It's very technical and some of it gets really heady and some of it is kind of the stuff that maybe only teachers and academics and Bible scholars are interested in. But here's, here's what I think um, we need to have as a takeaway from this passage. Here's what I think you need to know as you're gathered in social isolation wherever you are hoping to survive a pandemic. Here's what this passage is saying to you. It's saying God's plans don't always revolve around you. God's plans don't always revolve around you. Now that's a pretty crazy idea for the people of Israel. They've been accustomed to viewing themselves as being at the very heart of God's plans for the longest time. The idea that God could somehow have plots and subplots, maybe even entire other storylines weaving throughout human history that don't even include the people of Israel, that's hardly even imaginable to them. The idea that there could be this random king in this random city and that he could be a priest of their one true God that Abraham would recognize and submit to Melchizedek, that's insane, isn't it? Only, it happened. God's plans don't always revolve around you. You know, sometimes I wonder how Christopher Columbus and those other first explorers must have felt when they discovered this new world. New to them, it had been there the whole time. North America, South America, these vast continents teeming with all kinds of plants and animals that they'd never seen before and so many different people groups with all these different ethnicities and different languages and rich cultures stretching back thousands of years. The Incas and the Aztecs and the Cree, all of them important. Must have been so incredible to these explorers It's no wonder Joseph Smith decided to make up a bunch of stories about what God might have been doing in the new world. They were made up stories. They weren't true histories. But they did recognize something that the people in Jewish Jesus' day and many church people in our day simply don't recognize that God's plans are so much bigger than any one of us. God's plans don't always revolve around you. Those first two thoughts, that God's plans are always bigger and that God's plans don't always revolve around you, they pave the way for the third truth that we find here in Hebrews chapter 7, that God's plans always point to Jesus. Let's read verse 15 and following. This change has been made very clear since a different priest, who's like Melchizedek, has appeared. See, Jesus became a priest, not by meeting the physical requirements of belonging to the tribe of Levi, but by the power of a life that cannot be destroyed. And when the psalmist pointed this out, when he prophesied, you're a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, yes, the old requirements about the priesthood were set aside because they were weak and useless. The law never made anything perfect. But now we have confidence in a better hope through which we draw near to God. This new system was established with a solemn oath. Aaron's descendants were priests without such an oath. But there was an oath regarding Jesus. For God said to him, the Lord has taken an oath. He will never break his vow. You're a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus is the one who guarantees a better covenant with God. There were many priests under the old system, for death prevented them from remaining in office forever. But because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. Therefore, he is able, once and forever, to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. See, God's plans always point to Jesus. Through all those long years of law and sacrifice when priests would sacrifice bulls and sheep to temporarily cover the people's sins, God's plans were always pointing to Jesus. In the long centuries when the priests had to be descendants of Levi, qualifying not by being good people, but simply through nepotism, God's plans were always pointing to Jesus. When priest after priest took office, 
Someone dies and another priest succeeds him. And then that priest dies and another succeeds him. This long line of Levitical descendants, God's plans are always pointing to Jesus. One priest, Jesus. One priest, not because of his family, but because of the excellence of his life, Jesus. One priest, not not hundreds of priests because, because of their temporary lives, but one priest who lives forever, Jesus. God's plans were always pointing to Jesus. Why does the writer of Hebrews talk about this Melchizedek, this mysterious king of Salem whom Abraham recognized and honored? It is to point out to the Hebrew Christians that God's plans were always bigger, that God's plans didn't always revolve around them, And to point out that God's plans were always pointing to Jesus. Right from the beginning. Jesus is our eternal high priest. Better than Levi. Better than Aaron. Because of the high priesthood of Jesus. It's not a Jewish high priesthood. It's a Melchizedekian high priesthood. Admittedly this is an obscure passage of scripture. So how do we bring it home? How do we apply it into our own lives? What's our takeaway from a passage like this? How do we take some of the truths of the Bible here and and apply them and, and, and learn from them? My first takeaway this morning as I was studying this passage this week and trying to apply it to my own life, my own life, my first takeaway was simply this. I always have to leave room in my life for God to surprise me. I must always let God be God. His ways are not my ways. His thoughts are higher than my thoughts. I must always have this sense of humility when it comes to God, that I don't understand everything, and that just when I think that I've got God figured out, he might just send along my own personal Melchizedek to appear out of nowhere and to blow away all of my preconceptions. I must always leave room for God to surprise me. Has God surprised you lately? How do you feel about it? God's surprises are not always easy. I was watching my sermon from two weeks ago. This week, I was watching it online and making sure that my bald head wasn't too shiny. And it struck me as I was watching a sermon from two weeks ago that two weeks ago I had no idea that COVID-19 was going to have such a profound effect on my life and, and the lives of everyone in Swift Current, Saskatchewan, Canada. I just, just didn't see it coming. God surprised us with that one, didn't he? Most of you are aware of another way that God has surprised me and my family. Twin babies coming into our foster home. The last two weeks, they haven't been fun. They've been hard. I have to admit, at times, I've been resentful. My own first grandchild is on the way, and I'm going to be a grandpa, and I'm supposed to be in grandpa mode, right? Spoiling children rotten, and then sending them home to their parents. Grandpa mode, not newborn baby crying all the time, puking on me, sleep throwing out the window mode. God has surprised me with that. And in all honesty, I don't know if I'm always okay with that. Has God surprised you? Has he allowed something into your life that you just didn't see coming? And then maybe if you'd had the choice, you would have avoided if you could. Some of you are working through some really unpleasant surprises. Circumstances that are extraordinarily difficult to see God's sovereign hand working in. It's not easy always when God surprises us. But you have to learn how to roll with it. You have to have a faith that can encompass the the largeness of God. You have to leave room in your life for the Melchizedeks to show up unexpectedly. You have to leave room for God to surprise you. The second takeaway maybe is a little more uh, encouraging than our first one. You always, I always must remember that God is on my side. God is on my side. 
That last line of Hebrews 6 that Dusty preached last week, Jesus has become our eternal high priest, not just a high priest. No, no, he's our high priest. He's your high priest and he's my high priest. He's our high priest. He's on our side. There's so much about that that is so encouraging, so beautiful. I mean, if Jesus is your high priest, and he is, then you don't need any other high priest. I want you to think about that for a second because there are so many people that don't get that. Jesus is your high priest. So you don't have to go to a confessional and get a priest to hear your confession and absolve you. You don't have to do that because you have Jesus as your high priest. Go to him. And you don't need to pray through Mary or Peter or my own personal favorite saint, Saint Simeon Salas, the patron saint of fools. You don't have to pray through the saints. Jesus is your high priest. Go to him. And this week I was reading about this insane practice among some Christians where they go and they lay on the graves of dead Christians, people like C.S. Lewis and other famous Christians, in order to somehow get some of their dead spirits soaking into them. It's called grave soaking, and it's not a biblical practice. I condemn it completely. Think about it for a moment. When you accepted Jesus as your Savior, when you asked God to forgive your sins and Christ entered your life, you have the Spirit of God living in you. Why do you need the Spirit of Smith Wigglesworth? Jesus is your high priest. Go to him. My brothers and sisters, always remember that everyone who comes to God through Jesus Christ has Jesus on their side as their high priest. He's on your side. Go to him. And that kind of leads into my third takeaway from this passage. And it's simply this. I must constantly, continuously go to Jesus. A few weeks ago during a time of meditation, I, I felt like God had given me this thought. And I already shared it with you previously that there's really only two kinds of people on planet earth. There are those who are turning towards Jesus and there are those who are turning away from him. That's it. Just Two kinds of people. And I just thought to myself, I really want to be the kind of person who is always turning towards Jesus. Like as the sun moves in the sky, I want to be that flower that just follows the course of the sun. I always want to be turning towards Jesus. How do you do that? How do you become the kind of believer who's always turning towards him, who's truly experiencing the high priesthood of Jesus, the constant intercession that he offers? I found in my own life there's, there's three elements to this, to this turning. First of all, I continually recognize my dire need for God's grace through Jesus Christ. I need him. You simply acknowledge your ongoing desperation. Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them, they'll produce much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. John 15, 5. You are nothing without God. You'll never live a life that pleases him. You'll never live the life that you want to live on your own strength without God. You need him. And so you start out with that recognition that you desperately need him. Every moment, every minute, every day, you need him. The second element is just continually acknowledge what Christ has done for me. I continually acknowledge what Christ has done for me. Now, some of you may have noticed in the last three years of me pastoring this church that I'm completely obsessed with salvation, about the cross, about our sin and Christ's sacrifice. No Sunday goes by a bridgeway without the gospel being preached. And maybe some of you think that I'm doing that for the noobs, Right? For, the, for the newbies, for the one or two people in the congregation who might be just at the very start of their journey of faith. People that are still looking for God. That's who I'm preaching the gospel for. Well, no. Well, I, I'm doing it for them, yes. But I'm also doing it for all of you. And I'm doing it for myself. 
You see, any time that I start to think that I've grown beyond the cross, any time that I start to think that I can somehow add something to what Christ has already done for me, any time that I think that I can live one second of this Christian life without complete reliance on Jesus, that's the moment that I am in the gravest danger. As Caesar Kalinowski puts it, the gospel has saved us from the penalty of sin. The gospel is saving us from the power of sin and the gospel will save us from the presence of sin. The gospel didn't just happen once. It's happening in our lives over and over and over and over again. So I preach the gospel to myself all the time. I continually acknowledge what Christ has done for me. And then the third element is I continually turn to him. You just turn to him. Every time you think about it, every time it hits your awareness, when you're standing in line at the grocery store, turn to him. When you're brushing your teeth in the washroom, turn to him. When you're making a meal at the stove, turn to him. When you're waiting for your game to load on the PS4, turn to him. When you're driving to town, turn to him. When you're changing a diaper, turn to him. You just literally start practicing the presence of God in your life every moment of every day. As Darren said, he's here. If you'll just recognize him, he's here. Hebrews chapter 7. Because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. Therefore, he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. We're going to be exploring the priesthood of Jesus in the next few chapters of Hebrews, the next couple of weeks, whatever those look like. But let me close with just this one thought. Jesus is better than your spouse. Jesus is better than your children. Jesus is better than your mom or your dad or your incredible grandma. Jesus is better than your best friend. Jesus is better than your pastor. Jesus is better than the priesthood of Levi Jesus is better than the priesthood of Melchizedek. Jesus is an eternal priest with a spotless record who's on your side, who lives forever to plead with God on your behalf. You have no idea how great you have it in Jesus. You have no idea. Now, there have been many priests, and since death prevented them from continuing in their office, turn to Jesus, who lives forever, a permanent priest. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. It's indestructible life. I love that in verse 16, indestructible life. Forever God is faithful. Forever God is strong. Forever God is with us. Forever. Nothing lasts forever. Remember back in the day when appliances used to last forever? Vehicles used to last forever? Back when you had energy that could last forever? Now it seems like everything wears out. Everything needs to be tossed after five years. Nothing seems to last You bought a water heater and a furnace in the 50s and you were using it in the 90s. Everything used to last. This church lived in a time where every priest died. Nothing lasted forever. They'd trust one priest, he was gone. Take their sins to another priest, he was gone. But this new priest, he was always going to be there for him. Always. Always. 
indestructible life, forever he would be with them. He's going to be with you every single day, whether our church can't meet for two more weeks or whether we can't meet for two more months. He's not going anywhere. The priesthood lasts forever. The promise lasts forever. Forever God is faithful. Forever God is strong. Forever God is with us. Forever. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that right now as a family, we're so far apart, but we know that you are what connects us and you're not going away. And Lord, whether the world calms down or whether it gets more scary, Lord, whether it gets easier or whether it gets harder, there is one thing that will not change. You and your promise last forever. You are forever. So thank you that I can trust you in the middle of this storm. Thank you, Lord, that you'll be my anchor when it seems like the waves are going to crash my boat. Thank you that I can trust you with my family and that I can trust you with my life. I do not need to be afraid. Lord, thank you. Lord, be with our church family this week in all the different places where they are, in all the different homes, on all their travels. Be with them. Lord, keep our church family safe and speak to us. Encourage us. Remind us that you're always there and that we're never alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Take care and we'll see you next week. Have a great week.